0: Everybody to the Politics 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 Podcast for November 19th, 2021. Your old pal Justin Robert Young. The weekend before the holiday week. We'll traveling. I know I'll be leaving on Sunday for my favorite uh my my, my favorite holiday of the year, Thanksgiving. And uh I'm gonna be back with my family for the first time in two years. We're all getting together. Uh, We are all vaxxed, double vaxxed, boosted, ready to be in the same area, ready to watch some football together, ready to eat a lot of food until we all fall down and roll around. So before we do that, I want to have two conversations here. Number one, I would like to recognize the victory lap of Kirsten Cinema. Kirsten Cinema is somebody. That has gotten a lot of crap. She has gotten a ton of crap. And yet, she is uh, victorious. She was sitting there in uh, the White House lawn, singing the praises of the fact that there is a bipartisan infrastructure bill, which, as of right now, is... The only big win that Joe Biden has to his record now—it's a pretty big win. It's a bipartisan win. It's something that you would think, in 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 a, in another world where things weren't quite so polarized, uh, would be a kind of a feel-good story. And instead, Kirsten Sinema, who's a controversial figure, is surrounded in controversy. She also spoke to Politico and had a few comments uh, that I want to bring up as well. Also, this week officially brought an end to one of the most truly deranged eras in journalism, and that is the Steele dossier. There's been a lot of think pieces about the Steele dossier and specifically journalism think pieces, reckonings of exactly how journalism handled the Steele dossier and considering it has now been by the FBI and the Durham investigation pretty thoroughly, I hate the word debunked, but uh, 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 it has been found without merit and one of the key sources has been indicted for lying to the FBI. Well, there is a reckoning that is happening. And I just want to make one very clear point about the timeline on that. And specifically, it is this. CNN screwed this up. BuzzFeed made it better. We'll go through the timeline in a second. Also, we have a great interview with Anat Shankar Osario. She is a progressive campaigner, a message specialist for progressive causes and campaigns. She talks to us about the X's and O's of getting progressive voters out. We talk a lot about The 2022 landscape. We talk about the lessons learned from 2020, and we talk about kind of the global messaging when it comes to progressive causes. Even if you are somebody who does not consider yourself a progressive, and I know we have many that are listening, I believe you will enjoy this largely X's and O's conversation. I had never talked to a not before, but during this interview. We, we have a meeting of the minds that, while issues are serious, elections are about getting people into a booth to hit the button of your candidate more than the other person. I, I, I very much liked it. I think you guys are going to love it, too. But
1: first. How many times have we heard that bipartisanship isn't possible anymore or that important policy can only happen on a party line? Our legislation proves the opposite. And the Senators who negotiated this legislation show how to get things done. The Senators in our group of 10 effectively represented the needs of the regions we represent. Senator Cassidy in the Deep South. Senator Warner in the Mid-Atlantic. Senator Manchin in Appalachia, and Senators Romney and Tester in the West. And the Northeast and Alaska, each with unique needs, were ably represented by Senators Shaheen, Collins, and Murkowski, the wonder women of our group, always focused on the practical outcomes. This is what it looks like when elected leaders set aside differences, shut out the noise, And focus on delivering results on the issues that matter most to everyday Americans. I look forward to the work that we will all do together to implement this historic legislation. Thank you. A
0: reminder about bipartisan infrastructure. The general consensus amongst Democrats was that it couldn't get done. It was not going to get done. There was a gang of Republicans that were trying to Negotiate directly with the White House. That only went so far and it was only because Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin and Rob Portman said that they were going to lead their own negotiations, many of which uh, uh, included some of the people that were trying to negotiate directly with the White House, that the framework that eventually passed and got Mitch McConnell to vote for it. Then went to the House, was taken hostage by the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and eventually uh, uh, relinquished after Terry McAuliffe uh, uh, died for our sins in Virginia. What you heard was cinema in her victory lap. She was giving the big bipartisan speech, saying that, indeed, this is not something that we should always believe is totally out of reach, that the fatalistic idea that Mitch McConnell only serves to be the Lucy to pull the football away from Democrats and their Charlie Brown field goal kicking swing is, well, short sighted. But there's a long way from here to there. And while Kirsten Cinema does get to play the conquering hero right now, what is lost is the fact that she had to suffer a lot of slings and arrows to get there. She spoke with Politico, something that she very rarely does. She very rarely gives interviews while she is in direct negotiation. This is something that frustrated progressives to no end. That she was not in public saying what she wanted to say. Now, she had always said behind the scenes that she was very clear with what she wanted. But that did not stop progressives from following her through airports, protesting her, and in one moment, following her into a bathroom and recording her. Now, in the interview with Politico, she only took exception to three things. Number one, following her into the bathroom, she thought was across the line. While she understood that there was going to be uh, pressure put on her by progressive, uh, progressive activists, that was a step too far. Number two, she felt that recording and putting her students uh, because she is teaching at the college. That is where her uh, that is where the bathroom incident happened. That was over the line. And apparently, there were other students that were in that bathroom while folks were recording her. Again, I would like to reiterate that while I do think that that is a step too far, I don't think it really helps your cause, to be totally honest. And if we're looking at it from a zero sum perspective, I don't think that she became more likely to support the causes that progressives wanted her to support. By following her into the bathroom, I think it probably, if anything, pushed them two steps back. But for the funniest possible outcome, I really wish that an elongated fart had happened. Moving on. The third thing that Kirsten said had nothing to do with the protests. She apparently is upset that her fashion gets covered in the uh, uh, way that it does. Which I find to be puzzling because she seems like uh, uh, somebody that does want to make a fashion statement. And and I mean that in, in the sense that, you know, all of our choices that we make in terms of our haircut, our hairstyle, our clothing, the way we speak, the way we move is on some level sending a you know, a, 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 a collage of signals that comes up with who we are. Now, while clothing and specifically women's clothing is something that tends to be a bit of a hot button issue, I thought I was under the impression that Kirsten Cinema was somebody that very much wanted to be understood as somebody who was, you know, especially considering the Senate, fashion forward. She seems like somebody that has an eccentric style of dress. In fact, I found it odd that she was not into that being spoken about. But she also had two very specific points. Number one, that she very much just does not believe in negotiating in the press. She thinks that that is something that... Gets people spun up. It gets you further away from a deal as opposed to closer to a deal. So if she were to do what Progressive wanted her to do, which is announce what she was for and what she was against, all it would have done is hardened Progressive opposition to her with the benefit on their side of her being able to be very specifically shamed for something that she very specifically wanted or didn't want. Instead, they had to, you know, uh, uh, take. Educated guesses, not to say they were wrong, but since they're not from her mouth, we can assume that and then punish her for that. That didn't work. She was sitting in the White House lawn talking about how she won. And then there's this and I found this to be fascinating. Quote, you're either honest or you're not honest. So tell the truth and be honest and deliver what you can deliver. There's this growing trend of people in both political parties who promise things that cannot be delivered. In order to get the short term political gain. And I believe that it damages the long term health of our democracy. She says that in criticism not only of all the things that the Democrats said they were going to do, up to and including things that are now at this point fairly clearly DOA, like a new voting rights bill and all the things that were left out of both infrastructure packages, but also the Republicans who promised to repeal Obamacare without having the votes. Either you say, here's what we can do with this lead in the Senate, this lead in the House. Let's hope we can go further. Let's deliver on the things that we can deliver on and then build from there, as opposed to promising everybody the moon at every given time and then falling short. I also wonder whether or not part of her criticism of everybody promising everybody everything is a criticism of both Senate and House leadership, if not the White House, which has seemed to relish in promising people things and then not having an exact plan on how they're going to get from here to there. Read the moderates and the progressives in the House. She also says that Mitch McConnell has a dry, Underrated sense of humor, and uh that she is not friends with Republicans because it is a transactional relationship. She does feel that she genuinely has a friendship with some of the people that she has seen talking to, Upton, including Mitch McConnell and John Thune. One dumb part of the article that that has gone viral, John Cornyn, the senator from Texas, is quoted as saying that uh he would be surprised if the GOP ran. A candidate against Kirsten Cinema in twenty twenty six or no twenty twenty four yeah twenty twenty four. I think he's joking there. I think the Republicans are going to run somebody against Kirsten Cinema. Uh, although I I I could get it as a joke considering she is friendly with the Republicans. Oh, another thing in there is that apparently Republican leadership has flirted with the idea of her switching parties for what she doesn't want to do, and I kind of read that as a joke as well. Kirsten Cinema, she's the winner. Politics, politics. Let's get this straight, all right? CNN screwed this up. In the era of electric cable news, and we're talking about Prime, like, just snorted off the table and let your eyes go fully dilated cable news. The pure, right? We're talking about January 2017. Donald Trump hasn't even been inaugurated yet. There was a moment on CNN and it sounded like this. CNN has
2: learned that the nation's top intelligence officials provided Information to President-elect
1: Donald Trump and to President Barack Obama last week about claims of Russian efforts to compromise President-elect Trump. Multiple U.S. officials with direct knowledge of the briefings tell CNN that classified documents on Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. election presented last week to President Obama and to President-elect Trump included allegations that Russian operatives claimed to have compromising personal and financial information about Mr. Trump. The allegations were part of a two-page synopsis. These were based on memos compiled by a former British intelligence operative whose past work US intelligence officials consider
0: Several officials with knowledge of the briefings tell CNN uh, that the information was also included in part to demonstrate that Russia had compiled information potentially harmful to both political parties but only released uh, information damaging to Hillary Clinton and Democrats. Carl
1: Bernstein, let me bring you in here. Where did it come from? It came from a former British MI6 intelligence agent who was hired by a political Research opposition research firm in Washington who was doing work about Donald Trump for both Republican and Democratic candidates opposed to Trump. It was a report with four
0: bylines. All of the authors talking on television, including Jake Tapper, one of the faces of the cable news network. The meat of the story? Intelligence officials have in hand a disturbing report that might well be the smoking gun between rumors of Donald Trump's relationship to Russia, up to and including the fact that he has collaborated with the Putin government and the Putin government has compromise on him. Indeed, salacious details on exactly what that compromise might be. It was compiled this report, by a credible MI6 spy. And the story is being broken by none other than Carl Bernstein, who also broke a little story called Watergate. Have you heard of it? This was the first time that I remember hearing about what was known as the Steel dossier, the gasoline which would power the public demand for a special investigation into these allegations by Robert Mueller. That, of course, would then morph into a obstruction of justice situation and blah, blah, blah. It's a report that we now know is nonsense. Federal investigators have indicted the man known as Source D in the Steele dossier for lying to the FBI. And the most sensational claims... Including a trip by Trump's then lawyer, Michael Cohen, to Poland to meet with Russian officials, and an alleged tape where Donald Trump is uh, directing Moscow hookers to pee on a bed slept on by President Obama have been discredited. But let's get back to that night, January 10th, the night that CNN's report aired. Because I want to correct. The record. In a guest column for the New York Times that ran this week, Bill Gruskin of Columbia University, who's appeared on this podcast, traces the explosion of steel dossier back to the website BuzzFeed. BuzzFeed indeed published the entire dossier in photo form on January 10th, specifically the night of January 10th. The paperwork had apparently been offered to media outlets all over D.C. before that. But it was CNN first who decided to run that information and the news peg that that information had at some point been shared with both President Obama and Donald Trump as a breathless bombshell with a Watergate-flavored candy coating. In the moment, It was portrayed as the most monumental moment in presidential history. And now, after knowing what comes from it, it seems like a bunch of opposition rumors. The reality is that an ex-spy got hired by a messaging firm to collect a bunch of rumors and sell it back to them. What BuzzFeed did was a godsend in reaction to CNN's report It's very serious report. It simply ran the raw data. And thank God they did. Thank God they made CNN's report look stupid. Consider the alternative. That CNN, quote unquote, protects the public and instead uses their bully pulpit to report the dossier piecemeal, laundering what we now know as fiction even more mysteriously, even worse. Other more reputable outlets who no doubt had the same dossier, if BuzzFeed did, begin doing their own versions since CNN has set such a grave tone. Very rarely does the Washington Post or the New York Times do more bombastic reporting, and I don't think either of them, even if they really wanted to, had the ability to totally discredit the Steele dossier. The Washington Post in the last week has flat out deleted two articles from the initial steel dossier reporting period. And I can only imagine what would have happened if the Overton window of exactly what was in that Steel dossier right down to the peeing hookers hadn't been calibrated closer to reality. So as we put this situation in our rear view mirror, I want to let it be known. CNN got it wrong. BuzzFeed got it right. Even if you are going to attack BuzzFeed for saying, oh, you published unverified information. Sure, they did in the aftermath of CNN putting the Watergate spin on it. Everyone else who followed this flight of fancy without a critical eye deserves scorn in retrospect. But without BuzzFeed giving us the raw data, even right now, we might not know the full picture. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, we have... Great stuff here for you. I'm so excited that Andrew Heaton's in town. If you are on the $3 level, then you already got a bonus podcast in conversation with me and him, Heaton Tuesday, uh, where we went over uh, Beto's initial announcement. He uh, brought in his perspective as somebody that was in political media when Beto ran for uh, Senate in 2018, his perspective on it. But also, boy, are we getting into the we're out of the fallow period. We've got candidate announcements. We've got primaries. I already have a little wish list. I got I got a wish list of where I'm going to go next year. Wyoming, Idaho's governor's race. Maybe New Hampshire gets interesting. Certainly, Warnock versus Walker in Georgia. Gotta go out and see that. I gotta see Herschel Walker. Because uh, he has, he is a high-risk, high-reward candidate. And I gotta see what that looks like in person. But it only happens. I only get to be the only crowdsourced... Crowd, crowdsourced? Crowdsourced. Crowdsourced national traveling journalist. Because you... Put the money in my coffers. I'm going to be out there for you this coming year. In 2022, I ride for you. And that's because of folks who head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com. The $3 level gets you bonus podcasts. And this week, there were three of them. There were more bonus podcasts than there were free podcasts. How's that? How's that for value? That was $1 per podcast this week. That's good. That's good value. I'm just saying. Thank you to everybody who helps out. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Our guest today has made her living working in progressive campaigns and issues. She's got a brand new podcast called Words to Win By, where she profiles various different elections throughout not only America, but also the world where progressive causes came out on top and the behind the scenes electoral strategies they used to make it happen. But. She will talk with us not only about that, but about the upcoming 2022 races. What is the state of progressive voters? Are they more or less excited than they were heading into the last presidential election? And what themes do they need to talk about in an age of inflation? Enough intro. Let's get into the conversation. Anat Schenker Osario, Welcome to the show, Anat. Thank you so much. Now, I'm I'm fascinated to talk to you because we are in a very interesting phase of the political calendar. We are now done with the first year, the most fallow period. We now move into some of the meat of the races. We have announced candidates. We have interesting primaries. And what is very interesting to me as a political observer through this is we begin to see what everybody's. Messaging is going to be those first campaign announcements are fresh out from you have you have no pressure on you you just need to make what 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 your best argument is and uh, uh it seems to be a very interesting time for the Democratic Party on where they are going to go how much they are either going to uh, uh commit or or not commit to certain progressive causes which is a massive energetic part of their base so let me start here. Do you believe that in 2022, it will be easier or more difficult to run as a progressive here in uh, the midterms?
2: Uh, easier or more difficult than when? Let's say
0: 2020.
2: <laughs> Let's say 2020. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. It's a hard question. So let me start by answering that question. Let me start answering that question by actually giving a very little known data point. Okay. Biden won 2016 voters. So among folks who had voted in 2016, Biden won by 1.5%. Yep. Among voters who were first timers in 2020, he won by 12 points. Yeah. So what we need to do, what Democrats need to do, what progressives need to do is we need to engage in a process of returnout. Yeah, we need to take the people who were newly engaged in 18 and 20 and we need to get them again. So what that means is that we need to be laser focused on people who have very recently voted for a Democrat. This in contrast to focusing on what, you know, the. Obama to Trump voter, as we called it in uh, 2018, 2020, or this idea of reaching in and somehow kind of pulling people all the way from the throes of Republicanism into us. What we need to do is that mobilization, that enthusiasm that we had in 18 and 20, we need to keep it. And we need to not let people who did vote Democratic wander away. And so as far as is it going to be easier for people to vote to run as progressives? Yeah, in my estimation Mm -hmm. and based on campaigns that I have helped craft and helped run, basically, the name of the game is that you have to give people something to vote for. Yes, Because in every race, what people fail to recognize is that there's always three candidates running. There's our person, their person, and stay at home. And stay at home literally has the home team advantage because people are already there. And so if we are engaged in a process of just this is why the other person's bad, this is why the other side is bad, this is why this is terrible and horrible, although it does have a role, and I will come to that and to the idea of loss aversion, People don't turn out for nothing. They have to feel engaged that that act of voting has has some ability to alter the material conditions of their life.
0: So, I want to get to more of the broader elements of 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 progressive messaging because you have your your fantastic podcast Words to Win by that that takes these kind of case studies and breaks them down. But let's stick in the moment for right now in terms of our modern political meta. How well on a scale from one to ten do you believe that Biden harnessed the progressive energy in the election? And in this, you know, few months that he's been through, there seems to be friction, at least on the congressional level, between progressive and moderates. How well has he done to keep that energy, at least up till now and heading into the midterms?
2: Yeah, I think With Biden, my observation is that it's a bit of it was the best of times. It was the worst of times rather than (laughs) being a kind of, you know, middle of the road sort of thing. It is much more like a heartbeat chart where there are high moments where he really says and does some pretty wonderful And spot on things. And then there are some other moments where other things are happening and being said. And so, you know, one could average that out to a median. It's really not like that. I don't think that's a helpful way of looking at it. I think it is really more of a like up, down, up, down, up, down. Um, Now that that would be
0: the most polite way you could say schizophrenic or inconsistent. (laughs) Like if somebody were being unkind, you would you would describe somebody who swings from pole to pole as being untrustworthy, maybe.
2: I think that. You know, the perennial Democratic problem, and this was a problem not just for Democrats, but for progressives more broadly across the Trump era, is being cats with a laser pointer. Like that is our most consistent. It's one of our most consistent problems. Our other problem is that if we had written the story of David, it would have been a biography of Goliath because (laughs) what we like to do is talk about our opposition pretty much all of the time. And if I had to sort of encapsulate the progressive message, not just in the US, but this is a phenomenon globally, at least in the places that I've worked and studied, the encapsulated message would be, one, boy, have I got a problem for you, two, this is the Titanic, would you like to buy a ticket, and three, we're the losing team, we lost recently, so you should join us, that's sort of the Democratic pitch, and not particularly effective or compelling, so I think, back to your actual question, you see, I am i haven't wandered that far. Uh, no, I
0: we got it, we got it, you're still on the
2: property. I'm still there. I'm yeah. still nearby. I yeah. vaguely remember what you asked me. My, uh, uh, yeah, my- yeah.
0: B- Biden, uh, how well did, did he do a sale one out of 10 before and, and since uh, uh, he has been in, in, in the top spot uh, getting some of these priorities done? How has he maintained whatever he has done, uh, whatever he earned during the election?
2: Yeah. So I think that in terms of getting the priorities done, and again, I really you know, my area of expertise and where I do experimentation and and actually generate content is around messaging. Obviously, I'm a progressive person. I care a yeah. lot about policy. I care a lot about what happens. Um, but I just want to make sure like I'm evaluating the wrapping paper. Yep. As opposed to what's in the, the box, substance. Even, yeah. Even though the purpose of the wrapping paper is to create the most beautiful possible sales pitch for what's in the box, which is what actually matters. It's yeah. not that I don't care about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm just focused on the, and, and,
0: and, and by the way, uh, uh, you know, this is, you are, you are in a safe space here on this podcast where, where we live by the maxim that the only thing that matters in the actual world of elections, not issues, not not society, but in elections is to get more people into a booth to hit your guy's button than the other guy's button. Everything right. else is, look, we're not saying it's not serious. We're saying that this is the way that democracy works and, and, and that's the case. So, so please do, you, you don't, you don't need to justify it. We, we are here to talk about the X's and O's.
2: All right. So, um, so I think that, you know, the, On the one hand, there have been places where Biden and the administration more broadly have, you know, come out on the progressive side in terms of who they support, how they speak how they speak, Uh, being supportive of Representative Jayapal, for example, Mm -hmm. congratulating her, thanking her. In previous eras, it's hard to imagine, let's just be honest, Obama doing something like that rather than sort of giving a condemnation of what appears to be uh, a pushing or kind of not being a team player. On the other hand... The administration has not created the kind of sharp elbows that I would like them to have created. But let's face facts. You and I both would like to live in a world in which what people believe about Democrats is made out of what Democrats say or even what they do. But you and I live in America. And so what that means is that. You know, the former senator from MasterCard, which is what Biden was before he was VP and now president, Mm -hmm. gets called a socialist and the charge sticks, right? So people's impressions, and we see this in the research that we're doing pretty much on a daily basis, of what's going on is made out largely of the media portrayal of what's going on. And that's true about Democratic and independent voters. And so because we exist in a mainstream media environment that is obsessed with genuflecting at the altar of you know being impartial which to them means somehow reporting on flaws and issues as if they were the same right as if it were the same when there's some survey that shows that you know average democrat doesn't want to date a republican an average republican wants to come with an armed military insurrection to essentially end people's lives, like you know, whatever, Samzies, right, Samzies. Yeah, so you it. are, you
0: are, yeah. So, so this is well. I mean, but but I I do think that some of that can be an excuse if you are not handling your messaging right. And that would be the only thing that I would Holy. that I would say is is an issue right now on the other side of for you know progressives. I think Biden did a very very good job. Of not having a Hillary Clinton problem where she drew a line in the sand between her and progressives and, and blamed them from the very beginning of of when she believed Bernie should drop out, which is probably before he announced and until the very, very end uh, when, you know, she loses ultimately and, and blames Bernie almost more than Trump. It was like Bernie, then Russia, then Trump on reasons why she lost. And that created a bit of a division. Biden did a better job of being cordial with Bernie. Bernie dropped out far earlier in the process than he did in 2016. And from my perspective, just kind of being around, and I think it wound up bearing out in the numbers, did a good job of holding himself as a good hold your nose alternative to the, uh, you know, any other, you know, option that you would have. If you are a progressive voter, he is going to at least take people seriously. And because Bernie played ball, he's going to have a bigger role in this. Now, on one hand, Bernie has had a bigger role. I was surprised that he was the one uh, being the the biggest cheerleader on on television for the Build Back Better bill. Would have thought Biden being the president would have been somebody that could have been a more moderate choice to go and sell a gigantic bill where you have literally zero room for error. But Bernie was out there. The question now is, after progressives and moderates have spent the last three or four months fighting publicly with each other, the charge of, well, the media should be talking more about the substance of the bill to me rings a little hollow because everything that's been fed out into the media on these opportunities to speak has been infighting.
2: Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. The Democrats have absolutely not taken hold of the narrative again to speak kindly and have not been forthright in essentially saying what they're for and in doing what i like to call selling the recipe instead of the brownie that is another one of our kind of standard messaging errors that we have on the left which is that we like to take our policy out in public and our policy (laughs) your policy is not your message yeah right So instead of selling the ingredients and saying like, here's how you you combine all these things together, you just have to sell the brownie. And in point of fact, when we do testing, we find that the more imageable, the more kind of lived experience we make our language, the more not just people approve of the policy, but the more excited they are to take action on its behalf. So this, in concrete terms is the difference between saying paid family leave, which yep. is if you will allow the digression, just a, it's a repugnant phrase. Like, I have a real beef with the phrase paid leave because you're not paid to leave. For yep. those of us who have had a newborn, yeah, we know that it's not time off. It doesn't even resemble time off caring for your elderly parent, caring for a partner or a sibling who is, you know, really, really sick, being sick yourself. None of that is like heading to Hawaii. It is a break. Yeah. Yeah. There's no break. (laughs) There's no break. Yeah. And so it is far, it would have been far better. The ship is sailed to do what we did in Australia where I often work and we flip the name and we called it paid time to care because you're actually being paid to do something. You're not being yeah. paid to leave work. Also your default setting is not the workplace. The human does not like come out of a, you know, a uh, box in, in the office and then get put back in the box. So instead of talking about paid family leave or even paid time to care, saying you're there the first time your newborn smiles. When your mom passes, you're holding her hand. When we use language like that, when we say you go to the doctor and you don't get sick thinking about the bill, it is always more effective than doing a name check around, you know, Medicare for all or universal paid health care or single payer, whatever. You want to Talk in terms that people could paint a picture in their own heads. And so a lot of the issue has been with getting mired in this debate about numbers and amounts in order in many cases. And I understand the impetus to say, well, yes, but the money is going to come from rich people. Like we're also going to tax rich people, which, you know, don't mistake me. Very keen, very big fan like that, that. Yeah. Sounds good to me. But if you're having a conversation about money in any dimension, you are robbing yourself of airtime of putting this picture in people's heads of what life could be like. And that really is our strongest sales pitch is to give people that hunger for waking up in the morning and feeling the way that they want to feel. And so I agree with you. There have been to speak euphemistically, a lot of misopportunities. There's been missteps on the particular question of infighting. Yeah. I think that this is where we need to recognize that the media is structured in a particular way. And that particular way is that they like conflict. They like to report on conflict. Conflict is sort of a common part of most stories. Hero, villain, protagonist, antagonist, that's the way we're wired. That is our expectation of it is, how It is. It
0: is a news peg. You know, you can you can always say, hey, uh, Pramila Paul and Joe Manchin do not see eye to eye. That is a thing that happens all the time. Pramila Jayapal or Joe Manchin saying I don't like the other person is now a thing that you can report on as news.
2: Right. So recognizing that, recognizing that conflict is a story structure that the media understands and is very, very invested in, what a savvy communicator does is they say, I'm not going to change the entire basis of Western journalism and how they sort of decide what is newsworthy. Instead, I'm going to say, all right, you want to talk conflict? Yeah. Cool. there's a conflict. There is. Yeah. It's the same conflict we've always had. It's between the rich, the very richest and the rest of us. And every single political leader standing on our side is a Democrat. There are a handful of politicians who are beholden to big oil and big pharma who are selling us off for parts. And that is the conflict. Um, and I think that elevating that the challenge with that, let's just be honest, is that when I said every Democrat standing on our side, that's very carefully constructed language. That's not the same as saying every Democrat is standing on yeah. our side. That's not what I said. Yeah. Um, and so the issue then becomes what is your theory of change? And that is something, you know. I can't see the inside of, right? I'm not privy to all of these machinations, sure. yeah. and so what would be the thing that would move mansion and cinema? And the answer may be nothing. they you know they're they're made out of robotic parts and like cheap fashion. yeah um, but for me, I think at the level of narrative. It's been a mistake, and this may surprise you. I don't know whether it will or won't. (laughs) I think that the singular focus on mansion and cinema and the pressuring on mansion and cinema, which needs to happen and should not relent, but has actually... Elevated them to a status of kind of kingmakers and that they hold all the strings. When instead, what I would have suggested, at least from the grassroots, was to go and do bird dogging and stage things at pharma, at the pharmaceutical headquarters, the lobbying arm of the pharmaceutical industry, to stage events at you know, BP or at Chevron or at whatever in order to say, actually, the people voting are you. Actually, the people in charge are you and Manchin and Cinema are merely puppets answering to a higher order. They appear to be all powerful, but they have very little power and they simply jump to the bidding. And at the same time, had that pressure also be on Burkowski and on Romney and on Collins and on so forth, to say, actually, Pharma, you're calling the shots and And you're not part of our democracy, and to make them the villain in the story,
0: i I think the the other thing that i i would I would say is that going hard at mansion and cinema does very little to hurt mansion and cinema, like right. the more he says right. no to progressives, the more he continues to solidify his electoral base in West Virginia, which is a red state. Uh, the more that cinema seems to very much want to build herself into a Democrat version of a McCain or Goldwater unafraid to buck her party independent line and seems very comfortable saying, sure, primary me from the left every six years in a purple state and I'll take my chances there if I have an independent base when it comes to the general. So I I agree with you. I think the idea of making this a massive pressure campaign against two people as opposed to I mean, I don't know. I, I would agree. If you, if you want to take the, the narrative position of, of say, look, they are vassals to these, these lobbying efforts. And so we need to talk to the Lords and not the servants. Then, then that is a way to go. My, my take would be sell it in Arizona, sell it in West Virginia, like, like sell, sell these issues to the people that they actually are scared of losing, which is elect, you know, the, the, the electorate, which, you know, very well, that's the name of the game when it comes down to election season. Now, I promise only one more question about, about this and then we'll talk about the podcast and and some other general progressive uh, uh, organizing tactics. But we have seen very scary looking uh, uh, inflation numbers over the past few months. Not every progressive ideal or uh, uh, electoral strategy revolves around spending. Many do. Uh is that something that is just an inhospitable environment to progressive campaigning in the way that we've seen it done over the last five years as it's exploded?
2: Yeah. So it is not for nothing that there is a pattern that right-wing authoritarian parties in history in <laughs> across the world have come to power on the heels of inflation. That's a pattern that we know. It's a pattern that we recognize. And... So it is very real and it is very scary over and apart from the reality that many, many, many of our fellow Americans were already struggling to make ends meet. And yeah, it's it's very hard. And so, you know, th- there is just the reality check of people's lived experience and and trying to actually be OK and put food on the table and be home in time to eat it and all the let alone go see a doctor and all the mm-hmm. rest. So I want to acknowledge that. And from a narrative perspective, if we're having an argument about the price of gas and groceries, if we're having an an argument about the cost of consumer goods, we are having their argument. Yeah. In fact, just saw it's it's not publicly released, but there was um, some research done where progressive polling firm tried out different kinds of explanations for the why, the why yeah. behind information. Yeah. And all of them were duds. All of them were failures. None of them got 50%, you know, guess. This sounds credible to me, but the more noteworthy thing, this was done as an RCT randomized control trial. So people only heard one condition based on that one condition. The stunning result in that survey was that across the board, Democratic approval dropped. In other words, if Democrats are trying to say, Yes, prices are up, here's why it's because of demand, it's because of the pandemic, it's because of the global supply chain, it's because of this issue, it's because of that issue. If you're attempting to explain the cause behind inflation, then you are by definition talking about inflation and you're screwing yourself. Instead of talking about why stuff is so expensive, we actually need to shift the conversation toward why are Americans so broke? And if we were having a conversation about why are Americans broke, struggling to make ends meet, you know, don't have enough, don't have sufficient savings, if God forbid there is some sort of healthcare crisis or accident or all the things that we know can render you from a paycheck to bankruptcy, which is unacceptable in any place, especially a place this wealthy. If we were having a conversation about why people Are so broke or struggling, then we would be able to talk about the fact that corporations have deliberately held down our wages for generations. We would be able to talk about the fact that the things that cost the very most in life, healthcare, higher education, childcare, housing, have been deliberately put out of our reach by Republicans in order to keep us scrambling. And so now they want us to focus and fixate on gas and groceries Mm -hmm. so that they can continue to block everything that our families need and hope will look the other way. That's the pivot that we need to make. Um, And that's what we mean when we say if you're having your opposition's argument, you lost before you started talking.
0: (laughs) So my only question there is: Can you have that argument where there are some of those things that you that you mentioned that are about being critical toward corporations, being critical toward uh, uh, you know wage uh, stagnancy and stuff like that? But when we get into higher education or 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 healthcare, sometimes that can spin into the idea of okay, well, another government program and that's just going to make inflation worse. Is is, is there is there a way that you can? Shoot the gap there or is is it no matter what, you're always going to have to talk about something and convince folks that no matter what, these issues are going to matter more than the whatever your perceived issue of the solution is going to be?
2: Yeah, there's nothing that you can possibly ever say that is not going to engender resistance and pushback from some elements of the population. That's just a given. There are opposition for a reason. They're going to be opposed to anything that we do and say. Yeah. And so the question is really, how do we engage our base in order to persuade the middle? And I think that that's, at least from my vantage point and the way that I approach the work, that is one of the key pieces of the puzzle that we often get wrong when we conduct and especially in academia, when we conduct experiments around persuasion and we do measurement of like this paragraph or these three sentences and these three sentences and these three sentences. And this one was the most persuasive
0: quote unquote. Yeah.
2: Yeah, what that fundamentally leaves I mean it leaves out 50 million things it leaves out the fact that politics isn't solitaire and in an isolated environment people don't hear the opposition response and that's absurd because that's not real life it leaves out the fact that when people are taking a survey they are not behaving in the way that they actually consume political information because yeah. you are paying them for their attention I mean on and on but the main thing that I want to drive at is that it, what it leaves out is the understanding that turnout is persuasion. Yeah. And what I mean by that is that if no one will repeat your message, if your base is not going to say what you're talking about over and over and over again, then you can't break a signal through the noise. All you can do is buy digital ads or television ads so that that three sentence phrase that you tested can be visible to people, but people don't watch that. They yeah. click past it, they close it. And so the most potent messages are the ones that are delivered through relational organ through people talking to people that they know. Yeah. And that's why, I mean, that's been one of the most fundamental errors that Republicans do message testing to change the temperature and Democrats do polling to take it. Yeah. And if you're pulling to take the temperature, I can tell you the temperature sucks. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the end. That is Don't that is stop. you know go, go going where the puck is versus where it's going uh, uh, on on a fundamental level. Uh, uh, yeah. Now, look, I, I I told you we were going to do a thirty minute interview, and we're almost at the end because I've enjoyed talking to you about this X's and O stuff so much. But please tell us about the podcast.
2: Yeah, so. The podcast. So it's called Words to Win By and it's a narrative podcast. So every episode traces through a campaign we've won somewhere in the world. And we have different interviews. We in, um, where applicable we talk about the research conducted we talk about this was going to be the message and here's why and instead shifted to this and here's why we talk about implementation how people made folks actually listen to that mm-hmm. um we talk about the sausage making backstage in the cases where it's applicable where there was discussion or disagreement no that shouldn't have been the message we should have done this And we talk about how that led to victory. And so in the first season, we covered um, 2018 in Minnesota and how we beat back anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim race baiting to win across the board. In that state, we talked about Jacinda Ardern becoming prime minister of New Zealand. We talked about uh, overturning the ban on abortion in Ireland to make it legal this time around super excited. We started off in my home state of Wisconsin mm-hmm. and we look at how we flipped the state in 2020, uh, and ushered the way to the white house, Wisconsin, a super pivotal state for us to flip. We just aired an episode on, um, how this scrappy tenacious brand new group of gas grassroots campaigners, uh, beat back the far right in Switzerland. Um, and one of the things I'm most proud of this time around, we're airing two episodes entirely in Spanish. So we will release them in Spanish and in English. They're about the Dominican Republic and Argentina, respectively. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's All the right. story.
0: Uh, 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 last question here for you, because this is something that I found more fascinating, uh, specifically with you and another guest that is is very much focused on on uh, uh, a, an interconnected trends globally and and uh, this idea that as we are more connected that that we there might be more of just a a global movement on uncertain kinds of issues and you can uh, track and and message better because of it i take it considering this is a a podcast about these these races that this is something that you that you subscribe to that the things that are happening in ireland and argentina and and switzerland are lessons that can be applied in 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 a, in a domestic race, even though we often have the maximum that, that all politics are local, and and you should always be paying attention to the on the ground thing, and maybe not be uh, having your head in the clouds.
2: Yeah. So two responses to that: the first is that people are made out of people, mm-hmm. and the biases and heuristics and sort of the way that people process information and come to judgments, of course it is governed and constrained and altered by cultural context. It's, it's formulated and influenced by language, by language of usage and different languages actually alter the way that we perceive different um, ideas and concepts, but there are some universal things about cognition. Mm-hmm that apply wherever you are. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is that When I when we lived in Australia and most of the work that I was doing was around um, people seeking asylum and changing the discourse and and the campaigners there, kudos to them, won four sequential huge victories that um, ended up in the evacuation of two thirds of the people who had been living in offshore detention prisons for 20, 30 years. In some cases, a really awful draconian policy that Trump modeled his own after. As a matter of fact, that's where he got it from, Australia. Mm -hmm. When I was there one of the things that was astounding, but in retrospect, not at all surprising, was that I would routinely see from the right wing parties there talking points that came literally from the Tea Party in the United States. And so they would, you know, add a U, they would yeah. reverse the R the E, they would, you know, turn theater into theater and so on and so forth. But otherwise, they were completely identical. And the same is true in terms of right wing talking points that I see and hear coming out of Bolsonaro or coming out of Hungary or coming out of Poland or coming out of um, Boris Johnson and the entire lead up to Brexit that preceded him. The right wing has a has a global narrative. It is the Mm -hmm. narrative that is the oldest trick in the book. It is divide in order to conquer. It is to create some sort of other a scapegoat and to tell people the source of your pain is this and maybe in Hungary it's the Roma or it is Syrian refugees and in the United States it is people from Mexico and Central America or it is people who just don't wanna do the right thing or won't teach their children the right way or don't wanna work all of which are dog whistles obviously for black and brown people as we all know. But there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah, they do the same thing everywhere. This is the the right wing nationalist playbook. It's also there's a version of it in India with Modi, right, where the other is the Muslim. And so I think that we're kidding ourselves if we do not get with the program and recognize that this divide in order to conquer is a global Strategy and a global narrative. And if we do not start forging connections across movements, across countries, especially on an issue that is global, like climate change or like the pandemic, then we're just going to continue to be cats with a laser pointer fighting fire after fire after fire instead of having an overarching story about the way the world ought to work the things that most of us actually want and the ways that we can absolutely get it
0: spoken like a true progressive uh uh, messaging expert words to win by is the podcast and uh, we would like to thank anat Schenker osario did i get it right Osorio, but yes. Osorio. There we go. All right. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, 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 thank you uh, for taking the time out of your day to, uh, to, to speak with us. No,
2: thank you. Really appreciate it. Politics
0: politics. politics, politics, politics is hosted and written by me, Justin Robert Young for Dog and Pony Show Audio in Austin, Texas. This show is edited by Brett Stewart. If you would like to thank Anat for coming on the show. And I loved our conversation. I would greatly appreciate it if you guys went over there and and, and let her know that we love hearing inside these X's and O's conversations. I know the progressives got to love it. And I think folks who constantly find themselves voting against progressives probably enjoy the fact that they can look uh, and and see some of the the X's and O's that are being employed from the other side of the playbook. I think, I don't know. That's why you're listening to this show, right? Let her know that you appreciate her taking her time out to do it by uh, heading on over to px3guest.com. It's her first time on the show, so let's make her feel welcome. If you'd like to email the program, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch is px3live. You can share this podcast with your friends and family at px3podcast.com. And you can find merch at politicsmerch.com. If you'd like to give us a one time payment, you can do so at paypal.me pay jury. Our Venmo is justin young 20. Cash app PX3 cash and all physical items can be sent to P.O. Box 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. Again, P.O. Box 153184 Austin, Texas 78715. Of course, you can always get bonus content at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week covering all the news that we miss during our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name read at the end of the program because we know them as the Titanic $10 tier. Idris Arslandian, and DJ Katie Mac Meister, Doctor G, Lord Scale, The Kinsayani, Le Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicery, Seventies TV Salesman, or Spy. D really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc Edison. No mention on the podcast, please. Dot com junkie DP4 Bongo. Jewish Lives Matter. Hundred Mile Runner. Staff Sergeant Poopers. Double K Ranch. Pop Gold. Ye Old Pinball Shop. John Snuffy Super Zoomy. Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Miranda Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Richard, D. Laser, just another pilot, middle aged, Mike the Gen, Will, J Pink, and Andrew. You want your name? Amongst theirs? You want to live amongst the stars? <laughs> head on over to takepoliticsseriously.com and uh, know that your money goes to a good place not only keeping me employed but also making sure I get out on the road and uh i just see what's going on get outside that that weird media bubble especially with these smaller races man these smaller races it 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 matters more to get on the ground because everything's going to get whitewashed in a national lens And you guys can make it happen. Have a great weekend. Some of y'all are going to be traveling. Uh, uh, Heads up for next week. Not going to be a ton of uh, newsy coverage. We got two big chats. We will have a political triad episode. Jen Briney, Andrew Heaton, myself. And... Friday's episode next week will be a conversation with my mom. Because I'm gonna be in Orlando. So we're gonna talk to my mom. And let me tell you this: spoke to my mom the other day, told her that we we're gonna be doing this podcast. And of course, she always says, Well, what are we gonna talk about? And I'm like, Well, I don't know. What are you what are you fired up about? Not in love with the Democrats right now. Not in love. Gotta say. A little pissed off the fact that things have been uh, uh, such a, a stalemate in D.C. We'll see what she thinks on Friday, though. Till next time. This is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this. this is the only program that dares discuss. Oh. <laughs>